for November 9th, 2009, the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 71, War on Cold. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From uh, from California with the misfits and the, the, the hippies and the Jack Kerouacs and the surfers and the valley girls, I am your host, Matthew Rather, here with a panel of overthinkers to subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Doesn't deserve. You, said that, you said that already. <laughs> that was twice. Huh. You know what we should do? We should subject that to a level of scrutiny. <laughs> it probably doesn't deserve. Sorry, I, I really should prepare more uh, material. But let's <laughs> for the for the open. <laughs> let's launch right into the uh, let's launch right into the question uh, in honor of the the what the twentieth uh, anniversary of the Berlin Wall coming down, which is impending. I of course I haven't Wikipedia the exact date. Does someone else have that page up? It would be Monday, uh, November 9th Got it. 1989. 1989. So November 9th, coming up, coming up. Uh, we are going to ask, what is your favorite piece of popular culture uh, from or referencing the Cold War? No, let's narrow it down. Let's say from the Cold War period uh, that had something to do with the Cold War. From his dank basement atop a pyramid of root beer cans. Uh, <laughs> straight from... You know, from... no girls are ever going to want to come down here, Matt. <laughs> straight from an emergency, an emergency trip dealing to uh, deal with something urgent. It is Mr. <laughs> Peter Fenzel. You know, I have something very urgent I need to deal with, Matt. Uh, you, know, you know what it is? What's that? I, I have something that I really need to do, Matt. You know what it is? What is you it? know what I absolutely must do, Matt? You know what I must do? What must you do? I must... I must break you. <laughs> so my, although I often cited it as a mo- movie uh, that stands astride mediocrity like a colossus, uh, Rocky IV, in fact, my favorite piece of pop culture from the Cold War. I have a deep and endearing love for the scenes that don't have robots in them, uh, and was specifically from the, the turn by Dolph Lundgren as uh, Ivan Drago, the Soviet ubermensch who learns vulnerability and the price of of uh of slavery um in battle with rocky balboa so it has some that fight scene is wonderful and the training montage where he runs up the mountain and when he picks up the big wagon full of rocks nothing says america i love i love how rocky four <laughs> cast the cold war because in rocky four the 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 country with the advanced technology and the economic advantage and the, all the wealth and all the resources in the world is the soviet union and the country that like has to make do with a whole bunch of rocks and like forcing a whole bunch right. of people to work like incredibly hard for like a minimal payback and brutal conditions in siberia is the united states is it the plucky <laughs> <laughs> the plucky little upstart. Yeah, like like Rocky has to go to the gulag in order to become strong. Basically, <laughs> um, it's it, there's a whole bunch of transmogrification that goes on. You've got uh, a, what a, a Swede or a Norwegian. Oh, I'm sorry to my Swedish friends not being able to know which he is. I'm pretty sure he's Swedish. I think a Swede would have been very offended at what I just said, um, not being able to distinguish between the two. But uh, you got a, a Swede playing a Russian, uh, pretending to be an American, sort of in his training regimen, versus um, uh, you know an American pretending to be a Russian in his training regimen, fighting for 
vague vague reasons <laughs> very very vague reasons but um yes rocky four i'm gonna stick with that story excellent uh a, a fine benchmark movie Yes, a fine benchmark movie, but also just like for me, I mean, because I'm a child of the 80s and the 80s Cold War, the sort of like second or third wind of the Cold War, is a very different cultural beast than the earlier Cold War. And I suspect that some of your guys' favorites will come from the Cold War when it was a little bit, you know, a little bit more war and a little bit less cool, so to speak, (laughs) when it was a little bit less of a a kitsch artifact in its own day, Um, something you could afford to make over-the-top jokes about. Fair enough. Uh, moving right along in the alphabet from uh, Yuppie Brooklyn, Mr. Mark Lee. That's me. Hey. My pick for favorite uh, pop culture artifact from the Cold War is a what I suspect to be an obscure Commodore 64 video game called Raid Over Moscow. <laughs> is this familiar to any, anyone else on the panel? No. No, it was classified. <laughs> it's not right. a secret. Uh, Raid Over Moscow. <laughs> me being a child of the 80s as well too you know growing up that was our you know we were that was our first family computer was the commodore 64 we had this one game that i loved above all of the games commodore, uh, commodore 64 right over moscow um it, it was notable for a few things uh first of all being insanely difficult in that the first part the thing you have to do in the game is take your fighter pilot fighter ship that's in the orbiting space station and get it out of the hangar and this invariably involved you crashing your ship into the hangar about four times. <laughs> it's literally a very important and difficult part of the game. Once you got out of the hangar, though, that's when the action really picked up. <laughs> you find out in space, you, 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 you fly through Soviet territory and blow up tanks and whatnot. And then after you fly, you land in Moscow, which is essentially right over Moscow. And you get, right. like a, you get like a bazooka and you're like shooting at these Russian soldiers and trying to stop the nuclear missiles from launching and shit. It's fantastic action. And that really kind of like cemented in my young, uh, vulnerable mind at the time that the Soviet Union, the Russians, were the bad guys. Um, that and also I learned how to definitely pilot my uh, spaceship out of a hangar. Out of a hangar. <laughs> would, would you say that the game was so difficult that the only way to win is not to play at all? <laughs> Zing. Um, I, you know, a ton of think that's a good, good point. I don't know if I ever got around to beating it because the, the getting out of the hangar was a pretty difficult part as well, too. But I also recall the whole, you know, once you're, you know, on the ground in, in, in Moscow to be particularly difficult as well. Well, seeing as, you know, the Soviet Union sends legions of uh, uh, even dragos after you. <laughs> legions of them? But one of them can punch with 2,400 pounds per square inch. That's like like two wolves biting you at the same time. It's crazy. <laughs> imagine, imagine 200 wolves coming at you. Exactly. Uh, thank you, Mr. Mark Lee. And now, uh, in what I hope is becoming a, a regular feature on the podcast, Mr. Joshua McNeil. Matt, I would talk to you right now, but uh, my bodily fluids have been compromised. Oh, no! <laughs> Pur- purity of essence? How can you have it's, peace it's on Earth? Or really, of it's essence? in a bad place right now. Um, the fluoride that the communists have put in our water has messing with me. Um, Josh, you keep talking, Josh, and I'll feed you. I'll feed you, Josh. And you'll just, you'll just keep, keep making jokes, and I'll feed you. Fella could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with these jokes. <laughs> we are so yeah, an obvious from... choice, uh, an obvious choice, but uh, but still just one of the great movies of all time uh, is Doctor Strangelove, uh, with Peter Sellers doing a variety of amazing things and really pretty like it, it's a pretty early example of America sort of turning against the Cold War. It's made in '64, 
So, you know, it's 16 years after the Cold War started, about a third of the way through the, the extent of it, and you could already sort of see the cracks uh, that would show up later in uh, as played by Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, great. Is that that's that's kind of more thinking it than overthinking it, I guess. <laughs> well, in, the, in that he gave us something that's actually sincerely a wonderful piece of Cold War culture, yes. rather than tried to score actually, points by being the most ironic kid on the block. Yeah. Oh no. Leave that to me. There's nothing ironic about even Drago. <laughs> My other choice serious. was Plan Nine from Outer Space. So. Uh... <laughs> no, you went with a you went with a masterpiece of cinema. Uh, yes, sir, and it's it's fantastic. We should watch it. We should watch it on the anniversary in honor of it, and uh, in honor of uh, Jordan Stokes. I'm eating a whole pig. I I don't know, Jordan. How are you? I'm glad to have you on the on the show. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I, I'm, uh... Sorry, that's that's a way that's a way inside joke. That's a joke that we get and no one no one else did. We once ate a whole pig with Jordan. It was delicious. It was. Yeah. Yeah. The moral of the yeah, story so, is don't, um, yeah, never mind. I won't tell the moral of the story. That's <laughs> that's for private ears only. But uh, if you want the special moral of the story, uh just dial into the voicemail at twenty, eat logs girl one. Anyway, go on, Jordan. I'm <laughs> So my uh, my favorite piece of Cold War culture, um and this, like, I have a very deep and non-ironic love for this piece of music, but it's going to sound ironic when I tell you about it. It's the, the Billy Joel album, Stormfront, which comes out in 1989, and it's a double concept album, uh, or maybe triple, I don't know, where it's half about the Cold War and then half about like being a sailor and dealing with an actual storm front that's threatening <laughs> to, to sink your sailor ship. Um, and there's a particular song called Leningrad. It's one of the Cold War songs, right? This is, by the way, the album that We Didn't Start the Fire comes from, which is a, a pretty famous village old Cold War song. Leningrad is somewhat less famous, probably deservedly so. I'll give you a taste of the lyrics here. Victor was sent to some Red Army town, served out his time, became a circus clown. The greatest <laughs> happiness, The greatest happiness he'd ever found was making Russian children glad. And children lived in Leningrad. And then <laughs> the next uh, the next stanza starts. It says, "But children lived in Levitt Town and hid in shelters underground until the Soviets turned their ships around and tore the Cuban missiles down." And it just goes on and on. It, it's really fantastic. Mm-hmm. It is. It's fantastic. I sit in awe. <laughs> Mr. Joel does not get enough credit as being the great poet of his generation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> blown away. Really, what else is there to say? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Can you guys remember when there was that huge earthquake in Kobe, Japan, and like all those thousands of people died or whatever? And they went out in the news was like, Billy Joel was there, but he's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, did, he, did, he did not start that fire. He did not. He was not responsible for a seismic activity. That was a gas no, main not. and an earthquake. <laughs> well, probably the earthquake, earthquake triggered the gas main. We should make a McSweeney's list of fires that Billy Joel has actually started. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty good. Uh, all right, and then I am, uh, I am last as usual with the last name W. It has been the great trauma of my life that I never ever got to do anything first ever uh, because of this confounded uh, initial. My choice is Lee Greenwood's nineteen. 19- 84 hit God Bless the USA which is also was also a um, 
1991 and a 2003 hit, I think, because it had, <laughs> it had a resurgence both in the first Gulf War and uh, during the second Gulf War, during the, uh, the second invasion of Iraq in 2003. And uh, I just I want to, to read some lyrics to you. If tomorrow all the things were gone, this uh, piece of music begins, I'd worked for all my life, and I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I'd thank my lucky stars to be living here today, because the flag still stands for freedom, and they can't take and that away. And they can't away. take that away. Well, oh, and I'm proud to be American. Well, at least I know. At least I'm I know I'm free. <laughs> it probably doesn't deserve. Oh, I was just about to go there. I was going to wait for a bigger pause to open up, but I, I was right where you are. Um, okay, yes. You know what, I, what I'd love to hear? Can I? You know what I'd love to hear? I know we have listeners in like the former like Eastern Bloc in like Poland and yep. in parts of the former Soviet republics. Yep, yep. If there was kitschy pop culture from the Soviet Union, the Cold War that they could send us or like let us know about, like man, I would really appreciate that. That would be fun. Yeah, I think, I yeah, think this is really fantastic. Great, actually. actually, if you want to contact us at podcastoverthinkingit.com and send us some kitschy pop culture from behind the Iron Curtain, we also <laughs> we have a request. To uh, we have a request to the um, Iraqi uh, uh, unit that we sent the care package to that if they can find us some Iraqi comic books, they're going to send those to us as well. So right, we actually want to collect pop culture from all over the world. So if M- more particularly from from our vanquished enemies, I think is what you're getting. At. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we will drink your blood out of it, out of the skulls of your children. And uh, yes, so um, yeah, Emil, I want you to get I want you to get on that and uh, send us some old. You know, there must be a junk shop somewhere in Poland where that sells that. Uh, that old stuff. Or is kitsch... I mean, kitsch is kind of a luxury proposition, right? Like, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe... Yeah, uh, luxuries in Poland. It doesn't have to be kitsch. It can be socialist yeah, realist I'm, uh, I'm you saying, know, art. Yeah, I'm saying maybe, like, maybe people who, you know, suffered under the cruel lash of, uh, you know, Soviet oppression don't, don't uh, maybe feel as ironic about it as we do. I think they like to watch Dynasty and stuff. (laughs) Contrary to what we've all been taught by Matthew Broderick movies or whatnot, I think that there were certain sorts of basic human pleasures existent even east of the Iron Curtain. Um, That yes, like there was oppression and there were these terrible things, but you know, sure you can be pious, but it does not mean there will be no cakes and ale, right? Uh, That that reminds me, this is slightly off topic, but I just read a new story today about how North Koreans um, are big fans of South Korean soap operas. Of all things, and like um, there's a, a significant you know trade a, of smuggling of pirated uh, South Korean soap operas. So uh, beyond that, you know, modern day Iron Curtain that still exists today, uh, people certainly still are you know the, the 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 desire for kitsch and for cheesy pop culture is universal to appear even yeah. under under the the cruel iron fist of tyranny. It's really the only universal language other than Esperanto. <laughs> Which makes that one William Shatner movie in Esperanto some kind of like, you know, uh, perfect mathematical <laughs> limit. 
it's a codex we should send to the aliens so they understand everything about <laughs> uh, a kind of Rosetta Stone alright yeah, uh, exactly. so if you uh, hear anything on the show that you want to respond to uh, remember as our uh, as our friends at the Kingdom of Loathing podcast and, and many of us have been turned on to Kingdom of Loathing or I have and many of their listeners have been turned on to us as, uh, as our, our friends over there would say a podcaster is you and you can uh, write in by using the contact <laughs> form on the site, leaving a comment on the show notes, uh, emailing podcast at overthinkingit.com, or calling 20EATLOG01, that's 203-285-6401, and leaving a, uh, leaving a voicemail. Make sure to say um, uh, your name and say where you're calling from. And, uh, of course, it is a tradition on this show that you give your latitude and longitude in degrees, minutes, and seconds. Uh, we've had seconds up to three decimal places so you know we are prepared for that level of pre- precision but it is vitally important that you look that up before you call so that uh you're not frantically scrambling to google yourself uh while you're on the call because we've we've had a couple of those and it makes me edit and editing makes me very unhappy so that's podcast at or 20 eat log zero one tiny little reminder for those of you who were interested and liked getting the these effing teenagers podcast that has spun off into its own feed uh if you search for uh it it has a it has the full title cannot be said on this family friendly show but if you search for these f star 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 ing teenagers uh or (laughs) teenagers gossip girl glee on the um on the iTunes store, uh, you will find it, and we'll add a link from the homepage of Overthinking It uh, as soon as I graduate from graduate school. And, uh, oh, oh, there was one more thing. Oh, right, donations! Uh, I, am sh- I am astonished and humbled, shocked by the generosity and the wonderful messages that we have gotten uh, from people who listen to the show and who have supported it with a donation of cash money. So, uh, in the order that they came in, I want to thank Sean from uh, St. John, New Brunswick, Canada. I want to thank Adam from Bloomington, Indiana. I want to thank Dan from uh, Coburg, Ontario, Canada. I want to thank Johan, uh, Johan from uh, Zurich in Switzerland. I want to thank uh, uh, Tomomi from Brooklyn. And I want to thank... (laughs) Want to thank? Sorry, that's awesome. Yeah, we, <laughs> Alex. We should all thank Tomomi. Yeah, <laughs> that's <is> fantastic. <laughs> Actually, I emailed Tomomi personally thanking her, and she said she said something along the lines of, "I hope you know I usually give that money to Amnesty International, and I give it to." You <laughs> so thank you, and uh, I, you know, I think the prisoners of conscience. Conscience. Oh, and then finally, uh, a, a latecomer just came in today, uh, Alex from Wilmington, Delaware, who is always using the contact form to send us, uh, send us crazy emails in all caps and to call us names. So, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, really? Alex, yeah, yeah. You don't see. Uh, Mark, and, Mark and John see the, uh, see the responses from the contact form, and, and uh, Alex has sent in some choice ones. So, Alex, thank you very much for your very kind donation, you asshole. <laughs> Alex, Alex knows what the internet is for. 
Um, but uh, you know, and and despite his. Um, uh, you know, despite his uh, his what sarcastical way of talking with us, he was very donated. Now these donations ranged in amount from two dollars to fifty dollars, and we are uh, very grateful for each of them, but more grateful for the fifty dollar one. No, I'm kidding. We're gra- we're grateful for uh, every everyone who has donated, and we're going to uh, retroactively back to the first donations establish some public radio like. Criteria. Uh oh, Mark, get Jordan back, can you? Um, okay. We're going to establish some public radio like criteria uh, so that we can send out, you know, mugs. I think we promised mugs. What I don't know what exactly we were going to do. I think wrap up a mug from our uh, wrap up a mug from our own kitchen cabinet. Pete, was that the plan? Uh, oh, yeah, that was the idea. Yes, definitely. That was what I said. I actually said I would t- steal my roommate's mug um, when I talked to my roommates about it, and they didn't seem totally okay with that idea, so I may <laughs> actually have to take one of my own mugs. Um, but, yeah, the, the idea was that we would get a commemorative, one-of-a-kind, irreplaceable, uh, because we don't have it anymore, overthinking a mug uh, from one of our own uh, own private stashes. So we will so we will esta- right, exactly, right? Like, I have a mug with Shakespeare quotes on it or something, because that's the kind of thing people people are always giving you if you do theater right so i i will uh uh i will wrap that one up i i will make sure to um i'll make sure to wash it first so uh yes thank you very much the donate button is on the uh is on the site uh you help us to uh to make the podcast and the site at least a break even proposition and uh we are extremely grateful to you for that all right. I got taken to task by Belinky on the last episode because he said the uh, the announcements went on too long. So I want to wrap it up, uh, wrap it up right now. It probably doesn't deserve. Uh, let's move back into the um, <laughs> let's move back into the uh, into the Cold War and so- never again, never <laughs> again will an Iron Curtain divide the heart of Europe. Oh, you mean talking about it? Mr. I thought you. Gorbachev, I thought you were actually suggesting. Come to this wall. Mr. Gorbachev, <laughs> tear down this wall. Yes, no, we don't want to actually return to the Cold War, but we want to return to the topic. And let's start here. Uh, what has replaced Soviets as villains in our in our move? Well, no, now it's now it's you know Islamo-fascist terrorism. But let's uh, let's say I, I don't, I mean- between 1989 and 2001, what replaced? Uh, Soviets in in our popular entertainments as um, uh, as the stock as the stock villain. I don't know, Pete. Do you want to take issue with the premise? Well, I was just saying that I can take issue with the idea that Islamo fascists are have replaced uh, Soviets in the pop culture because I think there's been a very self conscious effort on several parts to not cast. Um, Muslim terrorists in certain movies uh, as the villains out of a sense of uh, sort of respect for reality, which is rarely afforded by like certain filmmakers. Uh, but that I'd say that uh, you see a lot more movies where it's sort of corrupt, um, old, either old world um, European inspired conspiracies or like secret shadow American elite conspiracies um, where you find some sort of organization that you don't have to as- attribute a specific sort of um, foreign nationality to, but you can have a foreignness by being a sort of cabal culture. So I'm thinking about like, you know, think about Da Vinci Code, right? Um, I mean, that's an anti Catholic piece, 
Um, but like, you know, it's not really like we don't like Catholics. It's not really a thing that's like, oh, go beat up your Irish neighbor or don't deny them a job. It's like <laughs> a, almost a fictional idea at this point because Dan Brown is not reflected, you know, pretty meaning, very meaningfully on like ecumenical dialogue and all that stuff. But like, you know, um, I, I, remember, I just remember when. Gosh, which one is it? Uh, the World is Not Enough. The James Bond movie where the villain was from North Korea. There was a great deal of stink because um, it was bad to make a North Korean villain because North Korea is not villainous. The people there are nice and, and there were lawyers that filed lawsuits. So you're much more likely to see like um, – like I think of the first Mission Impossible movie as a great example of a post-Cold War action movie um, where, spoilers, the villain is a disenchanted former member of the CIA who has been left behind by the end of the Cold War and has decided to, like, turn on society and is part of a secret conspiracy. Also, um, take a look at Under Siege. Take a look at The Rock, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even if you look at 24, there are a number of seasons where, like, Islamic terrorists are a big factor. But there's also a theme that, like, behind them somewhere in the shadows is, like, a large American corporation, like, multinational corporation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, the, the terrorists, enough, it's not yeah. their front, but it's that they're not, they're not the truth behind the truth, um, to quote something that I don't think anyone else was going to get. So I'm not going to bother attributing it. Uh, so, um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like that the Soviet Union was great because you could cast it as a villain and you could sort of almost pretend like you had no idea who they actually were. So it was like a blank that you could fill in with any number of undesirable qualities. And you could cast them in actors from any nationality. Like, very rarely was a Russian actor cast as a Russian villain in, like, a movie. You know, Gary Oldman in Air Force One as a Kazakhstani is hilarious, right? <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. I mean, what do you guys think? I'm with you on this. I'm with you on this, on this piece. He's, um, he's white. For the most part. But I, he's children. But I, I think he will negotiate. <laughs> Get off my plane. <laughs> anyway, so I'm with mostly with you, Pete, but I want to ask this question of the, of the panel. I'm surprised, actually, that Red Dawn didn't come up as one of our um, picks' favorite pop culture item from, uh, from the Cold War. But uh, as you're probably aware, they're remaking Red Dawn. And you know who they're replacing the Russians with in the remake of Red Dawn? The Chinese. Yeah, I mean, that makes And I'm not saying that the Chinese are, you know, now the new you know, evil empire Soviet Union for pop culture, but I mean, they're clearly setting them up to be their own studios. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also it's a lot more feasible that the Chinese are going to be able to muster enough foot soldiers to occupy the continental United States than it is that the Cubans are going to be able to do it. Like that was a little bit silly. I think we have to say that like the Cuban (laughs) army is going to march to Colorado. That's a little bit, that's a little, I don't know. That stretched my suspension of disbelief a little bit, I think. Um, because there are lots of Chinese people. I know that that's a fact. Uh, and so, and so it makes sense to make them the villains. Also, Red, if you want to keep the branding of Red Dawn, you pretty much either have to pick China or the College of Cardinals or the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, and I, I don't think Ozzy Smith would want to lead uh, uh, an invasion of people. I think he's too nice of a person. So that's just what he, that's just what he's trying to make you believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shadow communist conspiracy. He's a well, also, I think, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Will they be like an arch communist army? Will they be like a sort of nationalistic army? Um, because I think you see a lot of Chinese villains, but it's pretty rare that you see Chinese villains who are like straight up Maoist, uh, rifle carrying little red book carrying, like, you know, 
you know, scions of the Chinese government. You usually see like sort of shadowy Chinese businessmen or like sort of bureaucrats in a labyrinthine hidden bureaucracy, right? Like the villains in 24, right? We're much more of sort of like they're, they're in the shadows and they're pulling on strings and stuff, right? I mean, um, I'm trying to think what else. Like in The Dark Knight, I think that's when you have the Hong Kong guy. What? That, that's because we lost our fear of communism. Right. I mean, the, the, the sort of fiascos in Afghanistan and then the fall of the Soviet Union meant that as a culture, we ceased to be like the red menace itself went away. We're afraid of China for a variety of other reasons, but communism really has nothing to do with it at this point. Same with, you know, any other. Are there any other? Well, if anything, we fear the Chinese, not because of their communism, because, but because they're better at capitalism than us in some ways now. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, let me uh, let me try this on. What if uh, when we were afraid of the you know the Maoist uh, revolutionary with the little red book and the rifle, maybe we were actually afraid of the hippies in America. And as the social protest in the U.S. lost its fangs, and we stopped being scared of you know of those people that are wandering around shouting slogans, um, we're no longer afraid of the communist version of that. But we are afraid these days of American corporations. You know, I mean, we're if you if you watch a lot of movies, you'll get the idea that they're basically out to kill us and sell the parts, right? Um, so therefore, we get like Chinese corporations, and those are the new villains. Right. 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 Yeah. What's a good I, I guess, example yeah. of that? I mean, I believe you. I'm just nothing's coming to mind. Well, I was. I mean, I think Batman. Batman Begins, right? I guess it's the Chinese mafia there, right? Mm-hmm. I get, Yeah. I mean, I mean that's what? and that's a dodge, right? Like, well, it's not. You know, it's orga- It's organized crime. I mean, a good example of uh, like think about Iron Man, right? And it's like the whole military industrial complex thing, right? Like you have this these enemies who are in the foreign country, but really it's the guy in the boardroom. Who's the guy you really have to be afraid of? Um, although I don't know if you're looking to way to sort of you know further foreignize that by putting a Chinese face on it. I'm trying to think of another good example other than in 24, other than in the Dark Knight. Um, uh, gosh, well the Crank. How about Crank with the, the the Chinese mafia there? This sort of like shady business organization that um, you know the Chinese cocktail, the Beijing cocktail. Um, and, and that they inject him with, which is sort of like you know, their sort of back alley ability to invent tremendous things and innovate underneath the, the nose of everybody else. So, Crank has Chinese. The, the Rush Hour movies, I guess, also had sort of primarily Chinese underworld villains. Although, right? the Rush Hour movies bring up another idea, which is that it's not necessarily that China is the new villain. It's, ne- it's that the problems of China are now the problems of the United States in a way that we're very uncomfortable with, right? Because Rush Hour has good Chinese people and has bad Chinese people in it, um, but the really sort of culture clash element of it, it's not like Red Heat, right, where you have like Arnold Schwarzenegger is this like Soviet cop, right? And it's like, oh, no, we, don't, we can't get along with this guy. It's like we get plunged into this world where we don't know the rules and we don't understand it. And that in and of itself is sort of a big part of the threat that we're facing is that we, we won't even know what's coming. I guess that's also kind of the threat of communism, right? It's like we don't understand these rules. We don't understand how their power base works. Um, but like Chris Tucker is sort of stands in for the in, for globalization. Like like if you want to think of about what is the face of what is the face of the world is flat. If you want to think of Thomas Friedman saying the world is flat and suddenly people in America need to compete with people 
overseas for jobs and and for influence, who better represents that than Chris Tucker in Rush Hour and Rush <laughs> Hour Two <laughs> and Rush Hour Three, and, <laughs> and to a lesser extent, Money Talks. But no, no, that's something entirely different because uh, that's Charlie Sheen, who is sort of like China in that um, he he um, I guess. Um, ha- has a lot of ladies, which I think China also has. Um, anyway, um, I don't know. Does that make sense? That maybe it's 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 not necessarily the anxiety of of, of the threat of Asian invasion um, that has supplanted the Cold War in that particular part of the zeitgeist, but it has definitely replaced it as the sort of um, foreign land where important and powerful things are happening that we are not part of. Um, and so it becomes sort of a setting. It becomes a place where people are from. It becomes a world in which things can take place. Um, as opposed to, like, you know, in Russia with love or whatnot. Um, you know, I'd have to change the preposition or the, uh, just to, like, get the, um, get the, get the sentence right. I think you're right, Pete. I don't think that's just limited to China these days, though. Um, the Middle East, I think, has very much become that, too lately where we feel like we've been sucked into something that we don't really get and like yeah yeah we're sort of I mean, bothered do you think that, by do you think that's <laughs> i'm sorry i keep going i'm interrupting I, I'm, I'm like my brain is popping with cold war ideas so i uh, i don't mean to interrupt go sir go no I, I was just saying um do you think that that anxiety is part of the american character in an interesting way the idea that we are not quite up to speed on what is happening in the world. That that we're sort of a, not quite as sort of not devious, but like just as as sophisticated um, in, in the sort of operations of institutions. Um, because we're sort of a simpler, frontier-oriented, more individualistic folk. Like the machinations of old Europe scare us. Um, like the machinations of the Far East scare us. The machinations behind the Iron Curtain scare us. There's this idea that there's some party that we're not invited to, where people are smoking cigars. And like writing up prescription lists, right? And and part of us wants to destroy those people because they're bad, but I mean, part of us also kind of resents the fact that we're not invited. <laughs> like, you know, it resents the fact that we don't have seven hundred year old Illuminatis in America. Pete, do you, you know, do as you, much as you realize that you're describing both the plot and the allure of Twilight? <laughs> I did not because I'm not that familiar with it. But you know what? That's probably dead on. This right? is like well, it's this like, is what like you know, sometimes. I was going to say, do you sometimes feel like upset that you weren't invited to the Twilight book signing party? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, you know, I can't enter unless I'm invited. It's one of the rules, isn't it? Do they observe that? Do they yeah, observe actually, that rule speaking, I mean, speaking of Twilight, do, we have like what do we have? We have Masons. We have like uh, Mormons, right? They're sort of a secret society. We have Scientologists now. You know. Yeah, but those things are bushly compared to like the Knights Templar and shit. Well, fair enough. I'm sorry, and stuff. <laughs> and stuff. Oh, I don't yeah. know. They're definitely bushly compared to like the thousands of years of like the primacy of various Chinese authorities over like various parts of that changing country over time. Um, Hold on. Do we apply you know, this? this do, you, do we apply this theory that you're talking about to communism as well? I mean, I understand about you know, like kind of the the old world and its institutions and perhaps the mystery, mystery of the Far East and the ancient Chinese empires and that sort of thing. But communism is a fairly new concept, is it not? I mean, like, I can see the mystique of, you know, like being behind the, behind a, you know, behind the veil and there are these machinations that we don't understand, you know, this worldwide, you know, communist conspiracy. But you know, I think what we're talking about is a couple of different things here. One is sophistication, another one is age, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, that I would say that, 
I would divide all Cold War-related culture into two different categories uh, because classification is a great substitute for knowledge. So I would, I, would, I would make one of those categories the Cold War culture of living under the threat of mutually assured destruction. And this so. includes things like Dr. Strangelove and the movie Matinee. Which is a very underrated piece of Cold War literature, the John Goodman movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, and, and like scary movies and, and what it all means for like the experience of youth in the sixties. Um, and they, so that's one particular sort of like bleak, the sort of bleak, you know, um, we have missiles that are going to blow us up at any second. Way of looking at the world, and I remember li- feeling that way and like living under that. I mean, I think some of our listeners are young enough that they don't remember it at all, but I remember living under in a world in which that was a very real phenomenon. You really felt yeah. like none of this. Like oh I'm gonna get you know oh my god someone's gonna like blow up a little incendiary device with some ball bearings in it in my cafe or in my bus I wasn't scared of that crap you know I was scared of the fact that the entire world was going to be instantly incinerated at any given moment I would like sit in bed and think is it gonna be now is it gonna be now you yeah, know what I mean let's not forget war games gotta, right I gotta say yeah, yeah for me it was uh, it was spies it was Russian spies like there were when we moved into our new house. Right, there were like always Russian spies outside the window, and so I had to like uh, keep the lights off and lay very still in bed because there were like men in trench coats and fedoras lurking outside. Yeah, so I mean, I would say it's that interesting. That- I I, uh, I grew up in the exact same time as y'all, and I never had any kind of worry about like Russians trying to. That's kill because me. you had yeah, you, a, lived- you had a happy childhood. <laughs> You grew up in Pleasantville. You lived in Pleasantville, Jordan. Yeah, <laughs> like, literally. It's true. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, I, I would say that the culture of mutually assured destruction is one of these elements. But the other element is, is there's a big chunk of Cold War culture that I feel is just an extension of anti-Nazi culture from World War II. Where you basically just take all the tropes from World War II and World War II movies and World War II books and you just swap out the Nazis and you put in the Soviets. And they're, and they're sort of like scary European, like landborn army, you know, with all sorts of like conventional weapons and, 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 and all this sort of stuff. And I mean, I think my theory that I repeat a lot is that that's why you almost always see Germans or people of Nordic descent playing Russians in movies is because it's really a movie about Nazis. It's really like Inglorious Bastards. It's not um, like Dr. Strangelove, right? Um, if you're thinking I mean, about that a movie- goes- that goes that goes further back than that, though. I mean, the 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 Romans were afraid of the Gauls in exactly the same way that, that we're afraid of Nazis and and then Russians. I think that's just like any culture like ours that has a lot is going to be afraid of another culture that wants to take it. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I was, that's I was, been true was, of every every successful empire in the world. They're always afraid of some other group of people that's usually much less powerful than they are. Mm. But that's you know it's sort of a rallying point for the culture of you know well if nothing else we can all get together to fight those bastards right well I mean I guess I was trying to relate it back to Mark because I was trying to to reconnect I'm that I don't well what well what are you saying I'm terribly afraid of Mark Mark wants <laughs> <laughs> stay away from what I have <laughs> he's rising in the east no um I was just saying that I don't necessarily think that a lot of the Cold War uh, culture is really about the fear of communism. Um, as an ideology. Uh, I think a lot of it is, is this sort of fear of the other that you're talking about. This fear of not the other, because that's different. That's like Harold and Kumar. I mean, this fear of like the hostile army, right? This fear of like the guy on the other side of the wall, like the guy on the other side of the Jack Nicholson wall, like what he was writing. Well, the thing is, another one of those really relates to what you were talking about earlier about the sort of sophisticated cigar party in the back room. 
Right? I, yeah, I mean, I think that well, a great movie to think about in terms of this is uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Which is an anti-Nazi movie, um, which exhibits a lot of what I'm talking about. In that, you have this this sort of the, you're chasing after this ancient artifact that has this like. Pr- incredible power and indiana jones is like wandering into that problem but he's also wandering into the problem of the nazis building power in europe at a point where like america and the nazis aren't really openly at war or they're not at war at all right the war hasn't started yet so he's sort of one and he's wandering into the middle east where he doesn't understand what's going on so he's a he's a fish out of water in his setting in relation to his enemies and in relation to the goal that he's trying to accomplish it's still a movie about you know these are the bad guys and i need to beat the bad guys to it but there's you know there is sort of a sense of conspiracy what are the nazis going to do with the ark if they get it you know what is their plan like why are they running an archaeological dig you know why indiana jones is doing it indiana jones wears his intentions on his sleeve indiana jones goes out there because he wants to find the artifacts and because he wants to save the girl and because he wants to fight the bad guys now, pete, pete it's, it's because it belongs in a museum <laughs> Get off my plane. Um, <laughs> I can go. Well, the, the thing about it. well isn't it like, I mean, isn't that, isn't that an odd assumption that it belongs in a museum? <laughs> Certainly not one that a lot of Chinese people would agree with well, right, right now because and they would say it belongs in their museum rather no, than our museum. Sure, exactly, right? Or rather that, like, you know, look, if the, um, yeah, if the Ark of the Covenant is maybe a bad example, uh, I mean, I, <laughs> it belongs in. Temple, right? Yeah, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Does it belong in a museum? It's a weird kind of culturally imperialist notion that the, that the correct way to, to uh, sort of experience and to honor the treasures of the ancient world is to ensconce them within a, an American institution, right? Well, I think that that's it's it. also just like practically, it's a terrible idea because if some kid is like, "Hey, I'm going to open, I'm going to peek inside," then everyone in the museum will die. Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think that that reflects a change in attitude since the time that the movie was made. But I do think that there is a sincerely altruistic motive behind wanting to put artifacts in museums, where if it's part of the common heritage of humanity, in, in a way, like it has, to, it comes from a, um, <laughs> having to separate uh, a little bit the the nations of the day and the ethnicities of the day, which are constructions from the their analogs geographically going back in time. So, for example, the people who currently live in Italy are not really the sort of genetic direct forebears of the Romans. You know, there's a lot of Lombards in there. There have been a lot of waves of different kinds of invaders and immigration, right? Like, it's a very different bunch of people that are living in Italy now than lived in the time of the Romans. But because of the constructions of their own culture, they believe that they have special claim to the artifacts of the Roman Empire. So, you know, if my bunch of Lombards migrates from Central Asia into Italy and takes over Italy over the course of a thousand years... You know, that's still a blip over the overall course of the history of the earth. Why do I have more right to Roman artifacts than somebody who lives farther away? Just because I happen to live in the same place? I, I feel like that you're, in order to make the argument that artifacts belong with the people of their ethnicities, there has to be a certain amount of proximity. You have to, you have to sort of live with this. You have to deal with the problem of reconciliation of compensatory justice, which is like the quintessential problem of these ethnic arguments, right? Like who stole it from whom? Who gave it? to whom how are you going to track who it originally belonged to and what does the person who is there now have to do with anything that happened back then in to a certain degree i don't know about that man what, what i don't do you know that you're kind of saying like oh, the, the you're British saying like that, uh, right to have tut as the egyptians do make that argument yeah. what the, the, the yeah. egyptian well okay the egyptians the people who live in egypt today are not descended by blood from the people who lived in egypt at the time of king tut right Either they, they the have British. no what 
but neither are the British. Well, exactly. Right. So, so from then, the, from what the, you've done, you, you've, you've successfully you successfully said that the people who live in Egypt now don't have a genetic ethnic right to have these treasures, but none of that gives the British a right to have them, other than that they had a big enough army to take them. You know. Well, and, I mean, like, I, and since and since your argument is no good, therefore we should probably just leave them where they are because the British have them. Well, know? I mean, I think that like, you, you, since it's only a negative argument, there's no positive argument for the British. Well, no, the them. positive argument is that given that you can't necessarily establish a proper a property right to these things, even and that they have value to people in general, then perhaps as a as a common group, we should find somewhere. To put these things, we should find somewhere to put this museum. We right. should find some place where humanity can hold them in common. Now, I think that there, and, and that should be in England because that way the British, that's why the English people, the speaking people, can access them easily. And the well, Egyptians I don't think that's what Indiana Jones thinks. I don't think Indiana Jones has like <laughs> ulterior motives and wants to charge admission to go watch and see the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, I think that he thinks. Well, I that think that Indiana Jones it. is a he's a professional archaeologist, which means that he's paid by a system which is uh, you know sort of designed to accumulate material possessions for the glory of empire. I mean, that's kind of where, like, the tradition of archaeology comes out of. It's come a long way since then, but then he's a rather unreconstructed example of it. Jordan, Jordan, there you go with your Marxist economic theories again. God. (laughs) Way to bring the communism into this. Going back to the Ark of the Covenant and Museum, I just want to throw out the fact that a much more satisfying end to Night at the Museum 2 would have ended with them opening the Ark of the Covenant and all of (laughs) it. <laughs> Wait, is the Ark of the Covenant in Night Museum? It's not, but it really uh, should. <laughs> it's my point. I mean, well, then I guess the other question is then. Well, then, at this point, given that we have a more robust international system now than we had at the time when all these artifacts were being gathered, perhaps that we should have – we should turn to an institution like UNESCO, a sort of international cultural maintenance organization, to determine where is an appropriate place for the case of the common good to sort of you know, collect and display and study these artifacts. Who should we get access to them? How should we determine it? But I don't think that a nationalistic answer is any more satisfying than an anti-imperialistic answer in terms of – of the need to actually get the value that we can out of the history that we can learn from these things. Well, from a purely economic perspective, like having the relics of Egypt in Egypt means a lot of income for Egypt. Well, sure, but the, you know, I mean, but that's, I mean, so what? Also, so, so what if having Yankee Stadium in Egypt? Having Yankee Stadium in Egypt would mean a lot of revenue for Egypt, too. You know, I don't so know like, about that. <laughs> you don't think so? You don't think uh, every, everyone outside of New York hates the Yankees? Well, they would throw uh, rocks at it. It would be like the new uh, Black Stone at, at Mecca. <laughs> no, <I'm> sorry, <laughs> that's inappropriate. <laughs> can, can, can we, you, you make the claim that the Egyptians bear no genetic relationship to the Egyptians of the ancient times. Uh, Where are you I getting say- that? Where am I getting that? Well, yeah. I mean, not no genetic relationship, obviously, but not <laughs> a not a. Obviously, you'd have to say there's some, right? But, but you where, can, where you do you know think they came from? Where do I think that they came from? Well, uh, multiple places. Greece, Arabia, other parts of Africa. I mean, there's been... Schooling classes came from Greece and the Macedonians and Arabia during the Arab takeover. But, like, Bob the Egyptian guy at the bottom of the social ladder has been Egyptian for, like, 5,000 years. Uh, Bob the Egyptian guy? Is that his name? I don't know. Bob is very (laughs) most common name. Bob is Uh, the most common name in Egypt? Absolutely. I'm standing by it. so, So, um... So in southern Egypt, do we still is southern Egypt still primarily populated by black people then? As it was in the time of pharaohs? That wasn't southern Egypt, that was Nubia. (laughs) Well Nubia doesn't like saying Mexico is the south. 
Well, well it, Mexico used to be this. Well, maybe parts of South used to be Mexico, like Texas used to be Mexico, right? So, who's to say that the people who all live of in California Texas, like, used to be all of California used to be Mexico, for which you know, see the first Zorro film with Antonio Banderas. I mean, think about how drastically the population of California has changed genetically just in the past 200 years. Oh, that was going to be my like, – God, that was going to be my intro. I knew I had planned a good intro <laughs> about California. It was going to be from the state of California where white people are no longer an ethnic majority. I am your host, Matthew Rather. Uh, but yes, is that true? Of, yes, it is. But and the, those those figures are by driver's license registration. So I imagine that the uh, by driver's license, you know, right. So that I I imagine that the actual figures are far far higher. Uh, that you know that uh, white folks that Caucasians slipped below fifty percent. There's still the plurality ethnic group, but you know, no longer we no longer have the the magic fifty percent number. Anyway. So let me do something crazy here. I think I'm, I, I want to just try to get back to the original topic. I know, you know, this discussion on, on you know, the, the repatriation issues with the ancient artifacts is wonderful and everything. But I want to actually I want to want to ask something that actually is, is relevant. And I, I really want to get to get your opinion on this is that we talked a lot about. You know, this idea of communism. What is it really that we fear about communists? Do we fear the bomb? Do we fear the ideology? Do we fear the uh, the otherness? The kind of the you know just the just a foreign power. Essentially, all these things I think are true, but one thing that, you know, the Cold War is over, it's been over for about 20 years now. One thing we still fear, though, is socialism, and which very much um, ties into what we have experienced with the healthcare debate, right? Mm. The S word has been thrown out there time and time again, not just, not just recently, but in every subsequent, uh, sorry, every previous round in which the you know, healthcare reforms debated from the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, 90s, and up to this present time as well, too. Where any attempt at introducing more government control with healthcare has been met with the um, with the criticism that it is a, uh, a, a it is a way to inject socialism into the United States, and that clearly is feeding off of you know that's red baiting essentially is is what it is. We, we're yeah. still, in other words, we still fear socialism, and I think that still is our leftover hangover from the Cold War. Mm. Do you think that most of the people who uh, respond viscerally to the use of the word – let me say that. What, what share of the people who respond viscerally to the use of the word socialism in the healthcare debate actually have an active understanding of what socialism is? I think a lot of them don't. Yeah. Um, and, and that, you know, if, if we're – Except that it's a conspiracy to drain our precious bodily fluids. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some I would sort of say shadow. that they, they don't – they probably don't have a good uh, idea what socialism actually is, but there's probably a very well-defined ideological object, which is so- socialism as construed by the right in America, which they probably understand very well. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. I mean, I don't think that during the Cold War, at the height of the Cold War, I don't think that your average American Cold Warrior had a really good idea of what communism is as an ideology, but they knew what the Red Menace was, you know? Right, 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 right. I actually I disagree, Jordan. I think that goes back to the, the line Pete used earlier, which I love and intend to steal, which is that classification is an excellent substitute for knowledge. <laughs> and, like, just, just by labeling it, this one thing... We don't need to know what it is. It's better if we don't know what it is. It's more mysterious, dangerous, and scary if we don't actually understand it at all. Hmm. Like, I'd, I would, I'd love to see, you know, Michael Moore needs to go out, or Jay Leno needs to go out and interview a bunch of people and ask them what socialism means um, and see if they have any sort of idea beyond, like, 
you know, they're going to take our stuff. I think Jay Leno yeah. would have a have a do a better job with it than Michael Moore would. I you know, I got to say. The guy gets a little strident after a while. Michael Moore, <laughs> yeah. not Jay Leno. He not Jay he Leno, he's America's <laughs> talk show host. <laughs> As opposed to Michael Moore being uh, what the Soviet Union's talk show host. Michael Moore isn't a talk show host. What are you talking about? I, I feel like we shouldn't digress from talk show hosts and talking about Michael Moore. Well, speaking of Michael topic. Moore, I, I'm, I'm thinking of um, I, uh, he appears in Team America World Police as spoiler alert, a suicide bomber who blows up Team America World Police headquarters. But he's referred to later by the intelligence computer as a quote unquote a socialist weasel. Um, so there again, you have the the S word being used as a label to criticize someone. Now, the I, I mean, I don't know. The, for me, one of the funny things about the sort of historical action that's going on here is how um, people associate socialism and communism, and they associate um, like European style socialism as it exists now with Soviet communism. Um, and and I think in the history, and maybe Josh knows the history of all this a bit better than I do. Isn't it isn't it the case that there was a lot of the socialist reforms that came out of like the late 19th century and and sort of and the points and during the time period during which Europe was not all killing each other um, weren't they put in place by leaders who were anti-communist? Right, like like the the sort of socialist and labor reforms in Germany under Bismarck were put in specifically as foils to the communist movement. The idea being that if you could have limited guarantees of safety and security under a capitalist system, you would take the wind out of the sails of meaningful ownership of the means of production by the workers or the overthrowing of the government. Because people don't want to control the government. They don't want to kill all the rich people. What they really want is to have their immediate needs taken care of and not feel like they're being, they, they can't make a living, right? I mean, that, that's what I was always taught in school. Maybe I was taught by socialists and communists, but um, I was always taught that, that socialist reforms are a powerful tool against communist revolution. Um, because, like, when the communists come, they, don't, they, you know, they say, peace, land, bread. They say, you know, we'll, we'll make your life better, right? And, yeah, and I mean, the thing communism took root in Tsarist Russia and the imperialist China, places where the people had nothing. Mm. Right. I mean, that, that's where it really caught on. It didn't catch on in more prosperous countries where the standard of living was higher. Mm -hmm. So I think anything, yeah, anything you do, you know, giving everyone universal health care, as it looks like we're about to do or some semblance thereof is only going to make us less likely to sort of commit sort of big acts of revolution. Mm -hmm. I think you we'll could also make fun. You could make the argument, though, that, um, say, you know, Sweden in the 20th century was more meaningfully communist than uh, communist Russia, in that communist Russia was basically totalitarian Russia, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't think that Marx would have recognized much of his ideology there. Right, there's Stalinism and then there's communism, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of the great ironies of communism that Marx says that communism is most likely to succeed when it takes hold in highly developed capitalist systems that have, what, a, a excess of surplus goods or something like that, where you, know, you're, you have to have enough shoes that are being made and sitting around that everybody gets to have shoes before you can start worrying about whether or not you're going to be communists, right? And that he, he foresees communism coming up in places like England, not in places like Russia, where shoes would 
continue to be like a very meaningful uh, problem for a long time, even to the stories that we were told when we were kids that like Reebok pumps were worth hundreds and hundreds well, wasn't of dollars. It, I mean, wasn't his experience of the kind of ravages of industrialization primarily in England? Where, you know, like he saw the Dickensian world of, you know, the factories and, and you know, and dehumanization and, all, you know, all the, the terrible conditions there. And this is what, you know, this is what led to his uh, rethinking of political economy. Mm. Hadn't, hadn't the I guy, mean, my point, my, sorry, my question in, in one sentence is hadn't the guy traveled to England? And isn't that, yeah. what, isn't that what tipped the scale for him? Like he would have, he would have, wherever he happened to have been hanging out at the time that he had come up with the theory would have been the place that he would have assumed would be most likely to become communist. No, no, no. My, my point was what weren't the, weren't the ideas of, you know, the communist manifesto and capital, uh, weren't they developed from his direct experience with that kind of industrial economy? I think they were. And it just is interesting as a historical irony that that's not where they turned out to be relevant. I mean, although I guess, you know, Russia well, certainly, you know, has an industrial economy like it, at this point. But. Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting because that's, that's like, so the problem with the communist revolution was that they, they had a hammer, but were not trying to hit a nail. What? Is that, uh, is that <laughs> they had that, a hammer and a sickle. <laughs> right, that the ideological tools that they had to, uh, to, um, you know, go at the, the czar and czarist, uh, you know, the kind of imperial, uh, society that they were in, um, were not designed to address that society specifically, but were in, uh, designed to address an entirely different kind of economy. Well, I mean, I don't think that it, that the communist revolution by Marx was seen as a as a tool to be deployed like at will, right? It was part well, of no, a broad historical and inexor- it was part of an inexorable forward movement of you know uh, uh, the economic dialectic. Right, and the the idea is that it's not just that you shouldn't have tried a communist revolution here. It's that he doesn't even. I don't think he, in in Marxist ideology you would attribute the communist revolution to like the actions and motivations of individual people, right? You would attribute it to the the class the class in itself, and he would and you would think that perhaps the you know largely agrarian classes in Russia and in China would not have been ready to spring forth into true communist revolution because they hadn't gone through a capitalistic phase. You know, they hadn't developed the underpinning of production. Uh, I mean, if you seize the means of production and the means of production is a bunch of dirt, then, you know, you're going to have a bunch of dirt and it's just going to be like manorialism or something, right? Like, um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean... Are there any movies that can help us understand this better? <laughs> well, Rocky Four, basically. I'm sure. Yeah, Rocky everything, Four. Is really everything that we just discussed now. I mean, like when the screenwriter was thinking about the you know the amount of pressure into the punch of Ivan Drago was really informed by a thoughtful uh, consideration of the implications of Marxism and the origins of the Russian Revolution. Mm. My point being with that actually is that um, when we think about how communism. Um, and socialism and all this translates into the pop culture understanding of the Cold War, East Germany, all the all those villains that we have. You know, clearly none of this you know is in play there. It's just a convenient other, and the sense of a totalitarian a totalitarian force is going to take all of our stuff, right? I just realized who the interim villains were, guys. We were we were asking this question earlier. It was the Russians, and then later on, it was sort of. You know, the corporations with a little bit of, um, you know, Arab warlord thrown in the middle. But it was the drug cartels. There was like three. Uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Drugs. I forgot about drugs. Clear and present danger. 
Yeah, like you were going to do drugs once and it was going to make you steal your sister's piggy bank and turn into a monster. And then Colombians going to like kill your whole family in L.A. Yeah, or, yeah. Me- or, or <laughs> yeah, Mexicans or something, right? Like. Did, did anybody else have the boy's life poster of human body that had all of the arrows pointing to your or internal organs and telling you in exhaustive detail all the horrible things that would happen to you if you did various drugs? I thought that was an instruction manual. <laughs> I was like, this now that's what I'm going to do. Nice. I recall uh, very clearly that the, the testicles only really had steroids pointed at them. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess, and they can swing out of the way, I guess. Yeah, no, and it was like, you're going to get jaundice, you know, like, you're going to get jaundice if you do drugs. I, I remember, I remember, um, Belinky still had that copy of Cartoon All-Stars of the Rescue, which I think is one of my favorite pieces of, like, politically motivated pop, right, which is, like, Alf and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and the Muppet Babies helping this kid not, like, smoke pot, right? And, like, the president shows up, like, President George H.W. Bush is the beginning with his wife, like, I hope you like cartoon all-stars to the rescue. Yeah, yeah, it was drugs. That's right. And you know what? We didn't – we won the Cold War. I don't think we won the drug war, at least not according to the latest Lil Wayne album. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we did all – our, all our wars from now on need to be two-word wars. When we war on something, we lose. Mm-mm, mm-mm. So war on terror is bad. War on drugs just is bad. Terror war, and we would have kicked ass. Yeah, war on <laughs> poverty doesn't. Work. Yep, war on crime doesn't work. Cold war works. Uh, yeah. um, what else? What else works? Vietnam war. We won the Cold War. We won the Gulf War. We the Vietnam War. That's because it wasn't actually a war, right? Vietnam War is a misnomer. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's, that's it's actually just, like Vietnam police action. Or it should have been called the War of Vietnam. If it had been called the War of Vietnam, it would have been accurately describing what was happening at the time. Yeah. Which is, yeah, right. It's a good thing that George Lucas didn't call it War of Stars. Then <laughs> <laughs> the Rebel Alliance would have definitely lost. Well, then who wins Battle of the Network Stars? Uh, <laughs> like only the Grim Hundred-yard dash. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> everyone. You know, I do think. It's interesting, the idea of the, the drug cartels being the villain. You do get that sense of uh, you hate and fear the drug cartels, but you also kind of want to be invited to their party. Because there's a lot of, um, of movies out of there. Drugs. Where you, what was that? <laughs> of drugs. Yeah. Of drugs. <laughs> I was going to say where um, you see the, the drug cartels being much, much more effective than the law enforcement agencies because they, like, they just have better organizational skills and they're not hobbled by bureaucracy, you know? Mm. Like in The Wire? Like in the first season of The Wire, I would say, yeah. Later on, you start to see like, the drug cartels get hobbled by their own bureaucracy, which is sort of hilarious to watch. But I'm also thinking of just like, you know, the, the things that they're making fun of on The Simpsons with McBain, where like, you have to have a cop go rogue, because that's the only way that you can like, uh, take down the drug cartels. If you try to work within the system, then you're going to be too slow and too weak. Mm, mm, mm. Which by I the way, I, th- I, I think, um, now, as we've mentioned, a ghost ship moment in movies... And you know, the point of the movie in which they real- make the realization that, they're, that the ship has ghosts on it. Um, so- someone should be tracking our wire moments in our podcasts to see how long it takes <laughs> the podcast to get to, to the, our reference to the wire. Um, this one came pretty late, actually, because I think we're going to be wrapping up soon. Yeah, we, um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I have one thing actually, I actually wanted to, to wrap up the, the Cold War discussion here is that I think for a lot of us, um, the, 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 the 
end of the Cold War, not so much the end of the Cold War, but specifically the collapse of the Berlin Wall was one of the really first um, historical moments that we were all conscious of. I mean, I think all of us on this on this panel right now were born between, what, 79 and 82? Is that about right? Yes. And so all yep. of us were, were young enough so that we, we have, you know, some bits and pieces of memory of the, of, the, of the Cold War in the late 80s, but then the Berlin Wall was the first, like, real um, historical moment that was really kind of etched in our minds. And remember that touched my, myself or, or, or the other folks on the panel, too. Kind of like, let's go back in time a little bit here and, and, and uh, remember kind of where we were when you heard about the Berlin Wall falling. Oh, gosh. Well, I will, I'll say this. And I, I mean, I've been stepping all over everybody this whole podcast, and I see no reason to stop now. And I apologize sincerely. Um, we had a piece of the Berlin Wall in my kitchen. Yep. Um, yeah, we had, we, my dad, well, we used to go to Germany a lot when I was a kid, Germany and Brussels. And, and my dad did a lot of business in Europe. Um, and of course, you know, Fenzel is German. Um, and, uh, it's, it's actually from East Germany, a part of East Germany that's, I, I think now part of, of Poland. Um, but, uh, so to say like, you know, the pe- people who live there when I lived there would be accurate. Um, but, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it it definitely was. I don't remember the exact moment where the wall came down, but I do remember when my dad came home with a little piece of like plastic with a little piece of concrete with the spray paint on it that he had bought when he was overseas in Germany. And I remember when he put it up on the shelf. That was a really powerful moment. It meant a lot to me. So. And my, uh, yeah, we had one in like our fifth grade classroom, or I guess it would have been fourth grade, 1989. Yeah, it would have been fourth grade classroom where a girl had. Uh, her parents had, you know, sent away or something for a piece of the Berlin Wall and had gotten had gotten one. And so we, uh, yeah, had that. I guess it was full of asbestos or something that you know, <laughs> was bad for us, not just morally. I just remember thinking, we won. All right. <laughs> um, that, that was my overriding, that was my overriding writing sentiment. Then you put on the Lee Greenwood LP. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Cassette tape, I'm I think. proud to be an American. Any more? Last, last yeah, moments? Yeah, so I, I remember sitting there watching the, uh, you know, the celebration that night uh, on the news. Uh, November 9th happens to be my dad's birthday, and mine is two days later. And I was about to turn 10. You know, he was uh, 42 or something. And they were... Um, and he told me that all the people in Germany were celebrating our birthday. So uh, <laughs> I thought it was pretty awesome. I was like... <laughs> This is a good, and then they're like cutting to like all places all over the world with people celebrating, and it was yeah, it was great, man. So they I want to thank the world for celebrating my birthday. That well, happy birthday, Josh. We're we're uh, releasing this podcast two two days before your birthday. It'll be up live on the site. Hey, thank you. Hey, uh, is it a is it a big birthday? It is. I'm turning thirty. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Which, according to various quotes that I've looked up, means uh, I will now never find a man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Well, good, because they're pigs. They're all pigs. I'll tell you that much. You had Definitely. your, your heart so it. set on that, on finding a man, didn't you? Yeah, I'm like Kathy in the comic strips. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than being Marmaduke. Well, uh, do you remember where you were when the Berlin Wall came down? Actually, since I know we have uh, international listenership, and we actually we um, we were thinking of of creating a contest to pit our international listeners and readers against one another <laughs> to determine whose country will reign supreme once and for all. Is that a good idea, or is that you know will we ignite Cold War Two, the war on cold? It'll be like. 
It'll be like Eurovision, except for the podcast. It'll be great. <laughs> um, probably some kind of some kind of fundraising competition, right? Uh, and the winner gets to um, I don't know uh, have bragging rights. We'll fly their flag over the overthinking hit site for a whole week, or uh, or something like that. Uh, but do you do you does any, do any of our, our former Eastern Bloc listeners remember what it was like when the uh, when the wall came down? Or do you want to share any? Um, Tell us any stories, you know, about uh, about what that uh, what that period was like. We would be fascinated to hear. You can call the voicemail, or you can you could you actually one thing you can do is record yourself and email an MP3 to uh, podcast at overthinkingit.com, uh, or call the voicemail at uh, twenty eat log zero one. That's uh, U.S. number, so country code one two zero three two eight five six four zero one. We also uh, we want to ask you to do something. We would like everyone to um, we want everyone to record themselves saying the the uh, final four words of the podcast. It probably doesn't deserve. Can you make a recording of yourself on your computer, your cell phone, whatever? Call the voicemail and leave it there. Um, you just spoiled the end of the podcast. Uh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Spoiler alert for the end of every Overthinking It podcast. Uh, can you make a recording of yourself? It, it's best if it's higher quality. So if you do it on your, um, uh, if you do it on your uh, on your computer, and then email it to us at podcast at overthinkingit.com, we can take attachments at that at that email address. Uh, we're rejiggering the. Um, the theme song of the podcast uh, and Stokes who is responsible for the current incarnation of the podcast is on it as well as Mark Lee who has proven himself to be a musician extraordinaire with among other things the I'll Be Back Terminator music video so uh, you know we have these these two masterful musical talents working on it and it seems like it might be some way there might be some way to integrate the voices of our listeners uh, saying uh, these words uh, into into the thing, yeah? Can you do that? Uh, if you can't, that's okay. Just email us, call us, or visit us on the website at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. out to be an American where at least I know I'm free. In Soviet Russia, podcast listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> it probably doesn't deserve. <laughs>